Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely, extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames. I felt like my style. I felt like sensing my style and skills. I only do so. From a distance. Okay, welcome back. It is July. Uh, it is hot, and I'm here once again with National Master Gopal Menon. Gopal, what's happening? Not much. Got some hot topics, hot takes. Hot takes, hot top, hot topic. Did you? Were you a, a customer? Um, not exactly, but I mean, I, uh, I, I fancied a lot of the the femmes from that store. Do do our listeners born within the last like twenty years even know what we're talking about right now? I don't think so. Does hot topic still exist at malls everywhere in America? Do malls still exist in America? Liberals would valid question say they don't, but <laughs> I'm not even gonna try to unpack that. <laughs> Me neither, honestly. Okay, all right. Um good. So on from that hot topic to our topic du jour. Um Today, we have sort of an interesting open-ended question that we're going to banty about. Is banty, like, is that, that's a thing, right? You can banter or banty. Banty? I think that's a thing. That reminds me of that one Simpsons Treehouse of Terror episode when they, like, when all those, like, uh, Western corpses uh, take back the guns. And one of them, like, points a gun at Homer and says play some piano and then he starts playing like <laughs> moonlight sonata and then he shoots the gun he's like that's piano i said piano and it's like the western style you know I, just I walked know. into a saloon yeah i know what yes. you mean yeah okay so he, this is from collins english dictionary banty you ready mm-hmm. a short or small often aggressive person hmm. Hmm. neither of us are short nor small. Yes, I'm trying to think. Do aggressive? I do I know any banties in my life? Are there any banties? I know oh, one. Yeah. Oh yeah, Carl Borg. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shout out to Carl, previous guest on the show. Carl, if you're listening, uh, if you're alive, uh, say hello. Um, okay. That said, let's get into our topic du jour, um, which is what you know. Last month we talked about psychology and chess. So, um, here's, here's our topic today. Your best chess. Think back to your best results. What did you do to produce them? Mm -hmm. So what did you do? How did you come up with your best chess result or results, you know, plural, if there are multiple that, um, come to mind, there's one that really sticks out for me, but I'm going to throw it to you. What's, what do you think? Where did we begin with this? Um, I think, like, really, I mean, it's going to sound kind of trite to say this, but, like, really, when you're not uh, expecting anything, 
uh, anything special, like from the tournament or, you know, you're just kind of like playing and it's, you know, Hey, that was just something nice that happened. I've, I've found that like very often for me, that's kind of the, um, the common ingredient. Um, what's nice about that is like, it lends itself well to, uh, staying in the moment, you know, so you don't really get too caught up with like any narrative, like, wow, I'm about to do this or like, you know, any sort of, uh, distracting thought. That's interesting because last, last month when we were discussing chess psychology, we stumbled on this idea about creating narratives for yourself and for your tournament and how that's like this innately human thing and how sometimes it can impact your chess, right? Like if you start to create a narrative instead of just being able to cleanly focus on what's in front of you. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very curious to hear though more about this, like lowered expectations. So like no expectations, lowered expectations. Why do you think that that's such an important, um, factor in terms of having a successful event? Um, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's definitely like about staying in the moment and like Mm -hmm. looking at what's in front of you, dealing with what's in front of you. Um, like, I'm not sure it it just like, I remember, uh, when we went to St. Louis with uh, Vladimir, Yes. what was that? 2015. Yes. One of, that was one of my best results. I was going to bring that one up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so there was a lot going on there. I mean, so it was the three of us traveling. So that was, that was very fun listening to Vladimir talk about like all of his hilarious stories. This is um, Grandmaster Vladimir Georgiev uh, for, our, for our listeners out there. Right. And yeah, I just had like probably one of the worst tournaments of my life. I think not too long before, <laughs> like it was almost like I didn't go to this tournament with you mm-hmm. guys. Um, I got like, I, I think I tied for like dead last in this, uh, I am norm invitational tournament. I remember that two yeah. and a half out of nine or three out of nine, something, something really bad. At some point I like lost like four games in a row, three or four. I think I, I definitely castled Queensland. So I think it was like three games in a row, but mm-hmm. I was, but I was, Oh, that's the first time I've heard that games. one. Yeah. Castled Queensland yeah. lost three games in a row. We'll <laughs> let the listeners work that one out. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really like, I mean, the games were not like bad quality cause I was fighting in every one and like, yeah, it was just kind of annoying. So <clears throat> I was really disillusioned with chess. I was still, uh, studying like crazy and I decided, Hey, you know, whatever, I'll just go to this tournament. And yeah, I, I just, you know, things just started to ha- like go my way. Um, yeah. I don't know. What about you? What, what was so special about that tournament for you? Yeah. Like, since, since that was one I was going to bring up, um, it's interesting because there were, there were two tournament tournaments that came to mind for me and they both had, I'm, I'm trying to find a common thread in them. So maybe as we, as we talk about it, this common thread will emerge because actually the two tournaments were like starkly different in a few ways. Um, so that event I played pretty well. I think there was <clears throat> there was something about it for me where I kind of felt <clears throat> a sense of readiness. I don't know if you recall, but that was the tournament where I finally broke 2300. I had been hovering around it for a very long time. Like I had been, you know, I think I had gotten up to like 2297 and then went back down. 
and headed into that tournament, I was like 2282 or 76 or one of those weird numbers in there. Mm-hmm. And I just I just played really well. Um, I got lucky against Corrales. He, he blundered in the end game and I was able to beat him. Um, and then I, I did play a good game against Alejandro Ramirez, uh, although he just outplayed me and opened Sicilian. Um, and then my final round, I beat another 2300 with a, a very unorthodox opening. I think the opening was B, he played B4. And then I, I think I played A5. <laughs> so that was move one for each of us, B4, A5. Um, Shout out to Lula Robs, leading B4 theoretician of our time. Oh, really? Interesting. So, um, well, I, I see, I would say Wayne Zimmerly is leading B4 theoretician of our time. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's true. Yes, I, I got all my Polish ideas from Wayne back in like 1996 when mm-hmm. I was like 12 years old. Um, anyway, or orangutan Polish or orangutan? Which is it, by the way? What do you refer or to B4 as? Or Sikorsky, yeah. What do you call it? Well, maybe not in this time, uh, political time, Sokolsky. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know. What do I call it? Wait, is that? No, that's the different. The, the attack helicopter is the Sikorsky, right? There's oh, like an, no, there's no. Like an oh, attack no, I was helicopter. just saying because it's a Russian name. Right. Sure, sure, sure. But it's very close to a name of an attack helicopter as well. A right. Russian attack, attack helicopter. Um, I don't know. I think I've just always called it B4. I've always called why. it the Polish. I've al- I learned it as the Polish, and I've always called it that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see what's so Polish about that move, though. Yeah, and also I I don't hear it referred to as the Polish anymore. Yeah, right? I know. Like nobody calls it that, but I grew up learning it as as the Polish. Yeah. yeah so so for this St. Louis event, so l- let me outline it, and then and then it'll be it'll become apparent what is different between this and my other event. So first, you know, as you pointed out, we went down with a group of three uh, pretty good friends um, to this event. It was you, me, and uh, Vladimir. And also uh, during the event, um, like we had some fun, right? Like I remember we have some photos from that event of, of us all wearing sombreros. Do you remember that? Yes. There was, like, <laughs> there was, there's like some really, really good Mexican restaurant not too far from the St. Louis Chess Club. I don't know if it still exists, but it did in 2015 and it was like amazing. Um, and they, they had, how did we get, how did we get sombreros? Do you remember? I don't even remember. I don't know. I think they just gave them to you. They just gave them to us. Yeah. They, they were like, you guys look like you need some sombreros or something. You guys look like you want to make a caricature of our culture. So let's, let's, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it wasn't our idea. They just somehow ended up, we just had sombreros. Yeah, but it wasn't their idea also. Right. It just magically happened. America's. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, um, you know, and then I, I actually have a really funny memory from that event. Do you remember Vladimir talking about how um, he could not, he, he likes to drink a Coke with his games, right? It's like during his games, he likes to have a Coke. We, we talked a little bit about tournament snacks on this show, right? Or did we not yet? No, we didn't. I don't think so. I don't think yeah, we did. So that's another question for best result. Like, what's your best tournament snack? But um, that was a question we asked actually for our tournament directors for the national elementary tournament. What was your, what's your favorite tournament snack? Um, that's where I'm thinking of that from. Anyway, Vladimir loves having a Coke and he couldn't find one like anywhere for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, Cokes aren't that hard to come by, but I remember I just like was, was in the St. Louis chess club and there's like a drink cooler, you know, like yeah. you can just get a drink out of it. And I just like opened the cooler and there was a Coke there. I hope I'm not confessing to larceny, but I'm pretty sure it was like meant for the players. Um, 
So I, I was just like, oh, look, there's a Coke. And I took it and walked over to Vladimir and he was like really happy about it. Um, anyway, that's sort of irrelevant. The point here is it was a tournament, that's <laughs> a long tangent uh, about completely nothing. The point here is though, like it was a tournament where we had a lot of fun. Like we went out, I think almost every night after our games, you know? Um, yeah. I remember we went to some, do you remember we went to some vodka bar and Vladimir was just like, I just want a regular vodka. <laughs> There's like 250 different like specialty options on the menu. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yes. And he was just like, what regular yeah, that vodka? was like across, almost across the street, right? Yeah. It just was like above. right next door or something. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was pretty fun. So that tournament, I mean, I guess, you know, to your point about expectations, I was just kind of like letting loose. You might remember, and this is something I think a lot of a lot of amateur players like underestimate the value of. And to be fair, I'm an amateur player too. Uh, but by that, I mean like, you know, class players, like up to class A. We did not really talk about chess at all the whole weekend. Right? Did we? Yeah, it was like, it was almost everything else. I mean, we would tell like, stories maybe that happen at chess tournaments or like muse about some garbage but like you know we weren't really oh how was your game blah 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 you know just a little bit of that and then okay back to being a human being you know right like that that's what i meant we didn't talk about our games we didn't talk about how the tournament was going we didn't talk about um like we didn't really talk about chess you know as you said it was like maybe a story here and there but it wasn't like a chess story. It was like a human story. Like this happened at a tournament, right? Right. Yeah. We didn't analyze our games. We didn't like go review them. We didn't like stress out about it. At most, it was just like, you know, oh, that was a good game. You played well or ah, you missed that. Right. You know, um, right. Was I in fact, was I the only one of us? Did you lose a game that event? I did. I lost uh, to Ashwin Jayram in the third round. Okay. That's what's that's what spiraled the, the night of drinking. <laughs> I think was that the same round I lost to Ramirez those those between the yeah. three of us those were our only losses the whole weekend right it was one loss to a, a grandmaster Ramirez and one loss to an international wait, wait was Ashwin a GM already by then uh, GM elect I think okay yeah and I don't think Vlad lost any games mm-hmm. um, so like you know and and I um, where do you fall on that let's say you have a student who's like fairly competitive they're playing like real tournaments you know like the under 17 at the Chicago open, let's say where, where do you fall down on this? Should the student after their game be like going into the Skittles room and analyzing it with who they played and then like doing a little study in practice, or should they just like chill out, go get something to eat and like have a good time? Where do you fall down? I mean, look, it's in this, you know, great America country thing that we live in, uh, you know, the, the Swiss system, Spoken like, with no sarcasm whatsoever. Right. Yeah. It, I think the Swiss system kind of like precludes you from doing that. You know, you, you have like, you know, what, like five to 15 minutes maximum to like scarf down. If you play some, to the whole round yeah. sandwich that might be open around the street or around the corner from the Western North shore, you know, like it's, it's, it's quite a bit, to deal with the, I, I would say depending on, on the round, really, like if it was the last round of the day, yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, I would probably like look up the opening mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but yeah. And maybe just like, if you like, let's say, uh, 
you know, you could extrapolate a, a, a tendency that was troubling. Like, let's say I wasn't managing my time well, you know, we could try to be mindful of that for the next game, you know? Right. That makes sense. I think that would probably be the extent of my post-game analysis. There's definitely something to be said about that in terms of, you know, like how brutal the American tournament schedule is. We've, we've, we've complained about that before, mm-hmm. you know, just even getting food, right? Even getting Absolutely. food and especially so that, so yeah, let's head back to that because um, you are a vegan, right? So right. It, it's even more difficult for you unless there's a Taco Bell around, which uh, you described once as a secret vegan refuge. Is that right? That's yeah, that would be correct. It is a secret vegan refuge. Um, so uh, barring that though, like what's your favorite tournament snack? How do you, how do you do this during, during events that sometimes the round doesn't even finish until like, you know, after midnight? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like sometimes I'm pretty anxious, like during tournaments. So I don't really like get that hungry as a result. Um, definitely chocolate, like Vladimir, he's been hip to chocolate for a while. And that was something that he suggested. And that was something that we had during our, I remember that. Yes. There's, there was like a Straub supermarket down the street and we got dark chocolate bars or something. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's got sugar, like it it's kind of filling, <laughs> and it, it it tastes nice. It feels like you're treating yourself, kind of. So, little caffeine in it too, which never hurts. Absolutely. Remember when they tried to ban caffeine? Fide tried to like ban caffeine as a oh banned drug. God. I think it was at an Olympiad or something like that. Well, because yeah, the chess is it has to be part of the Olympics, right? Yeah. What are we gonna do if it if it doesn't? become part of the Olympics. I don't know. I mean, you can like, um, I wonder if they try to ban caffeine. I, I, now that I, now that I say that out loud, I wonder if they ban caffeine for like snowboarders, you know, I'll tell you what we could do. We could put a bullet in the brain of whatever, who's whatever. Media <laughs> official, like, came up so how do you really feel about your coffee? <laughs> tell me how you really feel. Um, yes. All right. So let me draw the distinction here because so here, here's my other, best event that came to mind. And it's like a completely different experience than the St. Louis one. And you'll see what I mean almost right off the bat. So I I would say one of my most memorable results ever was I played in what they called the Minnesota FIDE Invitational. Um, It was a nine round tournament. Five. uh, Let me try to remember this. 10 players. I couldn't remember if it was five double round Robin, but it was not. It was 10 players. Um, split over two weekends. So the first weekend you play five rounds, the second weekend you play four rounds. And it was back-to-back weekends, and it was FIDE rated. You know, the idea was to try to help um, Minnesota and Iowa players where there's not a lot of FIDE activity, try to help them have opportunities to increase their rating. Mm -hmm. And at that event, I scored seven and a half out of nine, and I won it outright. Um, ahead of somebody, I think who had seven out of nine, I think I can't even remember who it was. Um, but at that event, I went to it like completely alone. As I recall, it was like early spring. So like early spring in Minnesota is like winter everywhere else. Um, and I went to it completely alone. I didn't really, you know, uh, have, have any like contact with anyone i didn't know anybody at the tournament you know i didn't like go out to dinner and and hang out with people or go to the vodka bar in st louis with them after the round Mm -hmm. um and you know i i actually even 
um, you know, because of the two weekends, like in between, I didn't really do any chess either other than to prep for my round six opponent. I was in the lead and, and my round six opponent was a half game behind me after the first five rounds. So other than that, like preparation for round six, I did like zero chess and I actually prepared for him in an interesting way. It was Matthew Dahl, um, who at the time, uh, national master Matthew Dahl, he was a scholastic player. I think he was maybe 17 or 18, but I found a game of his in chess life for kids. So I had, I had like some students who had some chess life for kids magazines and we were just like paging through it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is his game that he played. And sure enough, he repeated the exact line. Um, and the yeah, game it was, in, it was in your pet Catalan. Eh? It was, it was in my pet Catalan. It was like the, you know, you play E5, they go, it's sort of like a Queen's Gambit decline structure with black. They play pawn C6, you know, you go, you go in B6, right. You play E4, E4. with white. They can take it. He, yeah, he ignored it. You can take it. He ignored it. So then I go CD5, CD5, and E5, and you get that structure. And the game actually only lasted like 19 moves. Uh, he ended up uh, trying a, an ill-fated queen sortie and got his queen dropped on the queen side while I was busy, you know, attacking the king. Yeah, there's a remarkable uh, game in that that we should attach with between Donchenko and Geary. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell if that game was like bluff by Geary, like he, it's because he used the same queen a four type thing that I think you were, you either used in the game or you intended to use. Uh, but like, yeah. No, yeah, actually. So I, I was having a tough call. I, I don't remember. I'll have to look up the game really quick. I don't remember if I decided to play queen a four or not. Um, so like in that line, you know, one of the ideas of queen a four um, is you, you target the knight on D seven. So like black has to like make some, careful unraveling moves. Um, also stop bishop a6. Also stop bishop a6, right. although they can just play a5, right? And then they can play bishop a6 too. Um, yeah. I think I decided in the doll game not to, but I think I think the reason is because in an earlier game in the event, I did play queen a4 and it like didn't work out. So then in the doll game, I decided not to play queen a4. But you know a lot about those lines, right? Like you've, you've got like a Catalan sledding going somewhere. Yes. On Lee chess, is that right? What, what was the genesis of that? How did that come about? Oh, that, um, that one, well, that's kind of like a, a course that I might consider like releasing. Uh, so basically that was, uh, it started off as a friend of mine, um, enemy of the podcast, Akash Maduri, like requested a bunch of games where white attacks in the Catalan. And so I've, I've always felt like that, you know, that, that was kind of the beauty of the Catalan, just that it could be very universal and actually offer a surprising amount of attacking chances in a lot of lines where, you know, some people might think, oh, this is just opening with a very placid reputation. But, um, but yeah, I just kind of went crazy with it. And I found some interesting plans for both sides to try to be aggressive in a lot of the, you know, respected responses. I believe that game might even be in there. But yeah, so far that's not publicly available. But if there is interest, I would definitely consider to release that. Yeah, I I remember looking at it, and it was I was very impressed with it. So uh, we just need to like convince all of our all of our listeners to uh, to con to make you to sponsor the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and no, Danny's no Chipotle, <laughs> no Chipotle sponsorship so far, unfortunately. Um. So yeah, I found the game. I found the game with Dahl uh, while you were while you were bringing that up. And actually, it looks like I for for went. Wait, no, I did. Excuse me. 
um, I went for, not forewind, uh, queen a4. Yeah, provoking, you know, kind of hitting, tagging that knight on a5 and freezing it. Um, and then uh, he did play a5 and, and the game proceeded like that. Although later I discovered, um, one of my opponents prepared for me, and I discovered that queen a4 does not really have the impact you want. Um, mm -hmm. Because black can uh, actually go... Um, there's like some trick where they can like just let you take the knight in some lines and then your queen gets stuck down there. Oh, bishop c6 or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so like later it turned out that my preparation and that whole, that whole system was a little flawed. But to be fair, you know, this was the era of like Fritz V, so... And that was also the kind of the traditional uh, narrative, you know? Like that, that whole... Before that, that setup uh, in this closed Catalan got revived where, like you said, Black does play this kind of traditional... It looks almost amateurish in, in how stereotyped it is, like C6, B6, Bishop, B7. It, like, really, what should be wrong with it? You know, you're developing pieces. Um, you know, that was definitely the recommended way for White to play. So we should attach that game. The Which game? My Game really of Dawn? Study. Yeah, yes, the one you're referring to. Just oh, so interesting. Like, okay. And the one with Geary. It's, yeah, I've got the Giri Dunchenko one noted. My game is not particular. Like I said, my game's not particularly interesting. There's just a queen trap on move 25 and he resigns. Um, but yeah, we can include it just so listeners can have a visual of what we're actually talking about. Um, okay, so now let's, now let's go back and here's where I'm going to go with this. Those are two tournaments that if I think about like me, like mentally and what, and like actually like what I was doing during those events that are pretty stark contrast, right? Like one of them, I'm by myself over two weekends. I am doing some studying in between. Um, I'm not really doing anything social. I remember the tournament was held in like this library. It was like a library on like the 12th floor of a building, you know, like a small room. And so there wasn't like this surrounding atmosphere like St. Louis. You know, if you've ever been to the St. Louis Chess Club, the surrounding area has, just has this cool like ambiance, right? There's all this activity and vibrance. Um but here I was like isolated in winter in Minnesota, in Minnesota exactly on the 12th floor of a building in a library. And, and it's like, it was literally snowing one of the days I remember um, in March or something like that. Were you, so, were you on those little, like those school cafeteria chairs too, or like those long benches? Oh God. Th thankfully, no, <laughs> thankfully <laughs> it was like a, it was like, it was almost like a, it was like a posh library. It was almost like something out of like one of those, you know, like 19th century British movies, you know what I mean? Like you walk in, there's like, it's all like dark leather chairs and dark walls and that sort of thing. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, so a very unique location, but, you know, I think from hopefully from the picture I'm painting here, you can see that these are two very like starkly different events. So like what gives? What's the thread? What's the takeaway? Well, I mean, let's let's think. I mean, what were our expectations going into the event? You know, like were we like gonna you know dominate this event or this that like, or were we just kind of like focused on what was in front of us, kind of going game by game as they as they recommend? You know, just because that is the only realistic goal we could have. Yeah, that's interesting. I think in terms of St. Louis, I remember back to the St. Louis event. And were we like well prepared beforehand? Because that's also something I want to talk about. Because we weren't necessarily doing a lot of chess work during the tournament. 
No, none at all in, in terms of St. Louis. For, for that event, I think I did have pretty good expectations, you know, in terms of like, I was just going to play and do my best, you know? Um, right. I've been yeah, playing not, fairly not well. anything like, yeah, just, yeah, trying to control what you can. Yeah, exactly. I've been playing fairly well. So just like, you know, let's go and let's go and do our best here and, and see what can come of it. You know, I knew it was a very strong field with lots of gyms. I certainly didn't have any expectations of winning the tournament. But this is another yeah. Yeah, another difference because the the FIDE Invitational in, in Minnesota, I think I was like, you know, out of the 10 players, I was I was in the top half. I was like maybe four, three, four, five, you know, out of out of the 10. Um, you know, there were like maybe two or three above me and, and that was it. But it's not like they were way above you either. Correct. Yeah, they were like, you know, I, at that point I was like 2250. And I think the highest rated was right around 2300. And then there were a couple others yeah, so in like between. Right. Or maybe at that time, what was close to your peak, you know? Yeah. So like, I think, you know, there, I definitely had an expectation, like maybe I can win this thing. Um, so another difference, you know, another difference in terms of expectations even. So what gives, what are we, what's going on here? What about your pre-tournament preparation for, for that event or for both of those events? That's a good question. Um, as I recall, I did have the pairings in advance. So my pre-tournament preparation for the the Minnesota event um, was definitely much more than for St. Louis. For St. Louis, I did almost none other than, you know, general chess preparation. And when I do general chess preparation, I sort of do for fun. Like I'll read a book that interests me. I'll watch a show that interests me. I won't do very specific. You know what I mean? Like it's not structured. <laughs> yes. Your or, favorite. My favorite, exactly. Like Help Made in Seven, composed in like 1912 or something. I'm surprised yeah. that we haven't like brought that up in this podcast. I'm, I'm going to make did. note of that. Like, yeah. At that point, like I think it was my probably myself, also Carl Bohr. Like we we seriously were considering having an intervention <laughs> for you because of these helpmates. Like, like they're fascinating, man. Like some of the some of the constructions you have to get to to make them work. I think are just. I don't know. They're they're be- they're like the beauty of chess uh, comes out, you know. I mean, yeah. I, no, I, I I got you. I think I, my obsession with them yeah. started with the chess-based Christmas puzzles. Did you ever did you ever solve any of those? No. So like John Nunn every year used to release. Um, no, but I remember what they were. Yeah, like twelve the twelve days of Christmas. He would release one puzzle every day for twelve days leading up to Christmas. Later, it might have even been 25, like December 1st to 25th. I don't remember. But, you know, they were really, like, weird and difficult. He wanted to release puzzles that computers couldn't really handle, right? And then there are, yeah, some involving, like, weird word problems or logic, like the one that stumped Kasparov. Yes. Remember that one? Uh, Vaguely, yeah. Refresh my memory on that. I remember it happened, but I don't remember the puzzle. It was, what, like, you... White, it was a mate in six, but like white walks the king to h4, but none of the moves except for the last one can be a check. Do you remember? Uh, yes, like yes, it's like a it's like a construct five. the game, yes, yeah, I right, yeah, that. some retrograde analysis. And it, you, the best part about that was you remember when we had the chess camp and we gave it to like these students and like these these children that have no business, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. have no business of. Of, uh, of even attempting that problem, problem. Yeah. they just all come back with the solution magically somehow. Not even like by means of some great collaboration, but just simple. I think it was just simple, like 
Yeah. Well, no, I thought I thought it was um, in in one in one kid's case. If you remember, you remember Mr. H.H., who will go otherwise unnamed. I think he might have legitimately got that just just because his personality was such that he would have just gone and, and kept testing it until he figured it out. Oh, for sure. Well, but yeah, he was definitely strong enough to. And he was also strong that. enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I just seem to re- remember thinking like I wanted to go full Guantanamo Bay, take these, you know, <laughs> take them into the room and, and like start questioning like interrogation. How, how did you yeah. do this? Yes. Let's let's go and see if you can recreate it and explain the. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That because that's the the dead giveaway. It's like none of them could explain the logic. Right. Exactly. We have to do this because X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, Google right. told me we have to do this, so that's why we have to do. It. <laughs> Only Gopal can combine children's chess camp with full Guantanamo Bay. I mean, mentally, that's that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! What if that was the title of the chess camp? Welcome to full full Guantanamo Bay summer children's chess camp. <laughs> Shout out children to the U.S. Be... government for being so <laughs> transparent. Your children fair. will be interrogated every day on how they solve the problem correctly. Yeah. Like, the first hour of each day is just, like, um, you know, intense interrogation techniques. <laughs> yeah. The, but the irony is the, the most torturous position of all is being the coach at the chess camp. Yes. Uh, anyway. No, no, so, real quick though. Hold on, I want to linger on that for one second. Who would be the best chess problem interrogator? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, this is like within the chess world. Sure, or we could say both within the chess world and anywhere. So just okay. to, just to clarify and define their role, like this is a person who will interrogate you on how you got the the solution to a really difficult problem to ensure okay. that you didn't just Google it. I have two right. suggestions. Okay. Um, most, not because I think they're the best, but I think it, they would be funny to watch. So, uh, Maurice Ashley, like, okay. can you imagine as you're talking through the solution with him? He's like, what a spectacular move. Like, and all that really stuff. just over exaggerating. Yeah. Yeah. But it could, it could have quite an effect, like, because then he'll just like, you know, flip the switch and, you know, switch back to you, be like, you know, like a good cop, it. bad cop sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Or yes. Jekyll and Hyde could be right. Okay. Um, also, I like that. That's uh, a good one. Okay. You know, when we think of Guantanamo Bay, I mean, we think of, uh, I mean, to a certain degree, <laughs> like torture, right? Quote, so like, when we think of Guantanamo, I don't really think of Guantanamo Bay, but yes, when we think of it, all right, go on. I'm with you. Um, and, you know, like, what really is more torturous than to listen to Hikaru Nakamura constantly repeat himself? So, like, you know how they do, like, noise torture there or something? Like, just, like, you know. I have, I have to be honest. Like, like that. I, I actually, are you, a, have you watched a lot of his channel? I haven't. So, I don't know, like, anything about it, really. Oh, but that's, that's, a, that's a bad I mean, confession. it's like. King H4? King H4 chat? Hmm? What am I missing? Ah, okay. It's like a stream of yeah. consciousness thing. Like always. But like, he just keeps repeating room. himself over and over. So like. Have you ever watched. Sorry to interrupt. But have you ever watched one of those like soundboard streams? You know what I mean? Where they have. I think it's Miroshenko on a soundboard. Oh, no, no, no. I haven't. But I mean, I've, I've always like. I've composed those in my head, though. That's what this reminds me of. Is like a, a Miroshenko soundboard almost. So. For, for the listeners who have who just have no idea what I'm talking about, um, streamers will have like a soundboard where they can play whatever sound they want over and over. Um, 
And the soundboard in this instance is a chess commentator who I really enjoy. Oh, Dmitry actually. Komarov. I thought it was Miroshenko. I, they might have Miroshnichenko, right? Like not, not uh, like it's, it's sort of like a Russian and an English accent combined. That was, that's Miroshnichenko. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking of. And there'll be like phrases that you can just play over and over and over, like right. night here, you know, like that sort of thing. That, that was more like Peter Leko. That was terrible, Peter. <laughs> that was a terrible Peter Lego impression. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I actually, you know what? I I actually enjoy Lego's commentary. I'm gonna I'm gonna cop to that. I think he's he's got some insightful. Except he also he does he does have a lot of surprise when he just says you know like what you know like a lot. <laughs> what is this? What is it? Or I, yeah, uh, he reminds me of Oscar from Hey Arnold. I could see that. I could see that yeah, a little bit. Just yeah. the the tempo and cadence. Okay, well, as as is our want, we have gotten way off base here. Um, so um, let's 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 wrap this up because we've got a couple oh. more things to finish. Yeah, we're talking. Bring about bring us back. Yeah, pre tournament prep, and let's put a bow on this one. Right. So I one thing that you had said to me was um, like preparation or confidence is preparation in action. Ah, and, yes, right. Yeah, and so this was a very important thing for me to consider, like, during this uh, St. Louis tournament. I don't have any of the games there in, in this Leeches study I'm looking at. But, um, yeah, it was just very interesting because, like, to have a good tournament as well, you need a lot of things to go your way. And, and I had alluded to that earlier. Uh, but, like, a lot of the opening lines that were topical at that time or that I had analyzed and maybe for myself or students or prepared specifically for that tournament, um, I was able to get mm -hmm. and like almost my exact preparation. So it was, it was, it was a very comfortable feeling uh, kind of from the start in most of those games. And, um, and yeah, I mean, despite having the, like one of the worst results of my life, like a week or two beforehand, um, I still, you know, continued chipping away and, uh, yeah, I'm just like, I think one of the best qualities uh, a chess player can have is to be stubborn. I agree with that, actually. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, I just continued, you know, in the in between those two tournaments, just putting in the work, uh, really believing what I was doing. And then, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that idea of being stubborn. It reminds me of you remember we talked about CPD last time and the dogged determination, right? Right. Like this persistent stubbornness is another way to think of that. Right. Um, so interesting. Okay. Any final thoughts before I move on? Cause we've got a couple fun segments here uh, that we need to get to, but any final thoughts on like what helps you to be your best? What, how do you reach the best you? Um, Candles and uh, long walks on the beach. And maybe rose, rose petals. We could living your best life. Um, yeah, how do you see, how do you how do you live, laugh, love we, your best life? Yeah, how do we live, laugh, love our best lives? Um, I mean, really, like just kind of we've talked about it so much, like this uh, kind of lack of expectation or just being present. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Um, we also alluded to that vodka bar. Um, you know, vodka bars are great, but like the reason why I bring that up is because. Normally, like, I, I would be kind of strict during a tournament or, like, historically speaking, I, I had been, like, 
you know, not really drinking or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And as far as I remember, that definitely did not happen that night. Like the, for round four or five or whatever it was, I think the last day of the tournament, I was battling probably one of the top five worst hangovers I've ever (laughs) had in my life. I remember, so I remember, um, if, as I recall, we ended up playing bug house, uh, in one of the St. Louis chess houses at like two in the morning on the back porch that, that evening. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah, Vladimir, yeah, yes. Vladimir was like one of our partners, right? Yes. I don't remember who else was there. I want to say off the top of my head, it might've been like Kirilla and maybe Ramirez question mark. I'm not sure who else, who like who our opponents were, but it was a fun night. Yeah, we were playing bug house really late. But, um, but like, you know, doing what you enjoy, as long as it's not like terribly self-destructive. It's uh, so like staying present, you know but you can, but also being able to like cut loose and unwind kind of, is that right? Yeah. Just, just doing what you enjoy, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've known even some strong chess players who have told me they don't, uh, engage in intercourse, uh, during the course of a tournament, but interesting. That's like a boxer thing, right? (laughs) I remember that's like a boxer thing, right? Like if like the professional boxers or like athletes, you're not supposed to do that. Like, you know, yeah. But if you like unpack it, like what's the logic behind it? It's just, it really kind of all falls short, really. Okay. That, that sounds like the topic for a whole other show, like unpacking the logic behind that. I'm going to make a note of that too. Click my pen. Okay. Make a note. Okay. Um, all right, Gopal, we have two segments that uh, are a lot of fun. And the first one here, um, we need a name for the segment. It's our chess battle segment. What should We need a cool, catchy name for that, where we have one player go up against another player in a, in a, in a theoretical, hypothetical 24-game match. You got a good name for this? What are we looking at? I don't know. Um, I mean, because be- before, when, when we used to do this in our own like private conversations, we would just imagine straight up fist fights, not like actual matches. Now we're considering Um, an actual 24 game match, which I think has more layers to it, honestly. So I kind of prefer that. Yeah. I mean, and, and let's just say for this, uh, for this week's matchup, I'm pretty glad that there is no physical element involved. Yes. It would, it would be no contest if there were a physical element between these two combatant combatants. All right. So for now, until we have a listener suggestion or uh, a moment of uh, an epiphany, a moment of inspiration, we're just going to call it the uh, 24 match segment, the chess battle segment. Um, and today's matchup was submitted by a user who did not give their name. They're just Morphe 078. I'm guessing they're like a Paul Morphe fan. Um, so here's the matchup. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. 24 game match, chess match, chess death match, 24 games. Andre the Giant, uh, very famous, you know, movie star, wrestler, was in uh, one, arguably one of the greatest movies of all time, Princess Bride. Anybody want a peanut? Um, versus uh, Michael Scott from The Office, 24 game chess match. Who you got and why? Um, really, I, I, have, I have zero clue. Um, I mean, before we talk about our, our picks. I mean, we could do it a bunch of different ways. Like I kind of like what we did last time of like trying to diagnose, maybe playing styles, opening choices that we might see seconds who are their seconds. Okay. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So let's get into that. Okay. So where should we start playing style seconds, opening choice? Where do you want to begin? 
playing style maybe that makes sense because that general sorry go ahead i was just going to say so like playing style sort of impacts all the other questions right like your playing style is probably going to impact to some extent your well obviously your opening choice also to some extent who you pick as your team right um yeah i mean like so okay with michael scott i mean if we were to stick with the people in his universe like who you know who would his seconds be like i mean i don't really see a lot of good alternatives i mean maybe the best could be phyllis or fair okay so let's so let's try to figure out his team let's start with his playing style what is michael scott's chess playing style I mean, I'd have to say, like, I, it has to be erratic, right? Like, I, I would have to think that, you know, his... So, like, 1G4, like, we're playing the Grub, or what? Like, how erratic are we talking? Uh, Kind of like, let's say, if Creed Bratton were, like, the chief second, uh, I could see him plagiarizing, like, some YouTube video of the latest, like, meme Gambit. <laughs> so, like, the Stafford that. Gambit, like, that erratic? Yeah, or maybe even, you know, yeah, maybe worse if it, if it gets worse, but, but okay. yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, a bunch of plagiarized analysis. So, like, I, that's kind of what I was thinking. I don't know, Halloween Gambit. He might oh, yes, that good one. That's a good match. call. Yeah. Yeah, he might do something like that early in the match and then kind of realize maybe this is no joke if it doesn't go well. Right. Or like, I need to do like actual preparation and then it's sort of too late. Right. I I actually, I think Creed Braddon might actually be a very interesting team member for Michael Scott's like preparation because yes. Okay. Of course, plagiarizing is one possibility, but don't you always get the sense from like every Creed Braddon appearance in the office that he has like some sort of deep layers beneath the surface. Like he might be some sort of like chess wonderkind maybe like in his home life. Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> I wonder, yeah. Also, you'd have to think about, like, what's in it for him. Right. True. Well, I mean, in theory, he's getting paid, but he was also getting paid at the office, and that didn't really seem to change things. Right. See, that's what I'm saying. Um, if he was motivated, though, he could be a very interesting, like, not not like team captain, but he could be an interesting, like, team member. Yeah. You know, he would be the guy sure. who, like, finds the weird novelty in, you know, like, in, like, the... Uh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Or like, if they were adjourning games, like right. let's say if the, if this match took place in that era, uh, somehow, uh, yeah, I think he would be. You'd probably be the obsessive guy analyzing throughout the night. Exactly, to and try he, to find that right, like going down some like very weird, unexpected path, trying to find the way to make it work. Stanley would be a terrible second. I think. Yeah, I think he would sleep that. on the job a lot. Yeah. Um. Kevin could have some secret novelties, though. I could see him doing that. Jan. Kevin could also be the glue guy. Kevin could also be the glue guy. Like, you know, like, um, you know, keeping things, keeping things together at like 1 a.m. with like some, some pizza and like a garage rock band concert. Okay. Yeah. As you. Jan would be an obvious distraction. So we can't, I mean, she can't go anywhere near the match at all. Right. What about, okay. So Jim, like, I mean, I feel like he'd probably be too busy chasing Pam or like making strange faces at the FIDE press conference or whatever. Well, the other issue there is like, would Jim actually try to be of help or would he just take it as another opportunity to like prank, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, like, would we see like E4, E5, F4, EF, King E2 per gym suggestion, right? Right, and then yeah, instead he meant to write bishop e two or, or whatever, <laughs> or what, or whatever yeah. Prank move was yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. What about okay? Obviously, I can't even believe we've gotten this far without talking about him. What about Dwight? Interesting. Yeah. So I think for obvious reasons, Dwight would have to be on the team, right? Um, right. But would he be? So here's the question for Dwight, in my opinion: Would he be an asset or a detriment to the team? That's a fantastic question. I, I honestly don't know. I think. I mean, it has to be asset. In what? In what way? I don't know. It's. It's just. It's a feeling. <laughs> I, until I can articulate I, I mean, that, though. Yes, I uh, agree with you on some deep level, but how? <laughs> but as. But okay, I'm thinking also detriment for some reason because, like, I'm. I uh, remember this story about. Uh, Dorfman, do you remember the story about Dorfman during the the double K, the Kasparov Karpov? Was it eighty five match or eighty four? One Remind of those me. matches. So there, there was sort of this feeling uh, that Kasparov had that um, whatever he had ready, like Karpov was just even better prepared for it, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was just. It, just a very eerie feeling. So he started to suspect like, you know, maybe the, the second there's like a, a traitor in the camp or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, Yevgeny Vladimirov was the one that took all the flack for that, but, uh, he was actually, I believe the innocent one. Um, what happened was the, the opening choices for the next game were being leaked because, uh, Dorfman, one of the Kasparov seconds was playing, uh, something what they call the the totalizer the match totalizer so you could bet like make certain like prop bets on the match and so he he was prop betting like what openings would show up oh no right yeah exactly oh no i had not heard that story that's a crazy story so wow. i wonder if that's like something that creed bratton would do or <laughs> would, or would dwight do like to try to throw off the well, position, it, if Dwight did it, he would probably have like moles placing the bets for him because, you know, Dwight, Dwight really knows. Uh, I guess one of Dwight's strengths is he, he's sort of um, careful in terms of uh, like the government and like being discovered whenever he's up to something devious. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're but you're right. Like Creed, I could see Creed doing that for sure. I could see yeah. Creed doing that for sure. OK, so- should yeah, should we go to Andre's? Yeah, I was going to say, should we move on to Andre? All right, Andre's Giants, same question. This is going to be so much, uh, this is going to be much more abbreviated, uh, is my knowledge. It's so fair enough, but but in, in the case of Andre the Giant, so since he's like a real person, though, he theoretically has access to anyone in the world. Right? Okay. In this theoretical so, matchup, Michael Scott is limited to those people we know exist in the office universe. Does he Andre have the access to a doctor anybody. for that, like, giant tumor in his head or or what is that what happened i know he died early but i didn't i didn't actually is that what know. happened I, I actually don't know i don't either we should, we should look this up i really wish i would have done my research <laughs> yet again <laughs> okay but let's let's think about okay playing style andre the giant 
What's his playing, playing style? Uh, I kind of, I feel like really orthodox, to be honest. I, I was going that same way. I was actually thinking, here's an interesting one. What oh, about just like, heart failure? That's what it was. Uh, Never well, mind. I know, that makes sense. Like what about like the, uh, um, what about like the Stonewall? The Stonewall Dutch with black? Or, or with white even. Just like, it's, it's, it's not really orthodox, but it's just like, extremely solid it's uh, kind of like it's kind of like large in some ways right you have this right yeah it's super chain. like solid you know yeah i could i could see that like how are you gonna get like through a, that type thing yeah or like a a, a botanic english that type of ah uh, yes that's another of, yes exactly exactly yeah, i feel like that's so, his his playing like style so he's very so like i guess from that like we can kind of see he's very in uh philidor-esque in that like these are both kind of formations where we have the the pieces developed behind the pawns yes ah interesting so philidor with black okay I, that makes sense i was even no, leaning no, no. Like, just i mean in terms of playing style it could be it could but yeah as a result yeah sure he could play the the modern philidor with uh you know knight f6 and knight bd7 like yeah because that would also be pieces behind pawns against e4 i could see him going Man, I mean, like, classical Spanish with black. You know, I don't really see him messing with the Sicilians or Perk or... I was thinking French. Scandinavian. I was thinking maybe even French. Oh, French, another sort of uh, Wally type opening. Exactly. Yeah, like, like a French... Do you think he would be the type of, like, Poison Pawn Winnower type player or, like, one of those retrograde Winnower players, like, you know, after... Knight c3, bishop b4, e5, you know, queen d7 or b6, and a3, bishop f8. Would he be like one of those Ooh, guys? Ooh, interesting. No, I kind of think he would take, I kind of think he would take the plunge. He, he okay, strikes so, me as the one who would take the plunge. Or would he be like knight c3, bishop b4, e5, c5, a3, bishop a5? No, definitely not. I, kind of okay. Oh, really? It is? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's um, yeah, been fashionable again, but... I lean but, more. I lean more towards taking the plunge. What do you think? Okay, so yeah, maybe poison pawn. So like, not queen g four castles, but like queen g four, queen c seven. Come and get it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I could see that. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting choice for him, and yeah, also in pretty good theoretical health, from what I understand. Okay, so we wow. have we have playing style. We have openings. What about? Um, what about his team? Who who does Andre the Giant assemble? And remember, this is a, a real person, so he can use anybody. You know, during during the era in which he existed. So, from a quick scan uh, of the of his Wikipedia article, apparently he was friends with Billy Crystal. Interesting. Uh, they had met okay. during the filming of Princess Bride. Um, mm -hmm. So, I let's let's try Billy Crystal as a second. Billy Crystal, the apothecary in the Princess Bride. All right, so definitely would bring a lot of energy to the team. Would be able to keep it light. I like that. He might be even a good like team captain. We we might think of. Right. Okay. Um, who? Uh, so he, now your turn. Okay. All right. Let me think. Um, I was trying to think of like other wrestlers who were around in his time, and I think we can draw in Hulk Hogan. I think he counts. I think he was like doing his thing while Andre the Giant was around. So Big Hulk, Show is yeah. often compared with him too, apparently because of his size. Big Show? I'm not familiar with Big yes. Show. I got to catch up on my pop culture. What is, what is or who is Big Show? 
uh, he's another large wrestler. I don't believe they were wrestling at the same time, although maybe their paths would have crossed near the end of his career, Andre the Giant's career. That is what. Okay, so Hulk same Hogan? same question. Yeah, same question for Dwight and and Hulk Hogan. Asset or detriment to the team? You know, I don't know. I kind of actually want to take away Hulk Hogan and put in Macho Man Randy Savage. Ooh, ooh, I like that. Okay. All right. I like that. I mean, coked out or otherwise, I, I really have no, I have no clue, you know? I, I don't know. Do you think the Scott team could be intimidated during the press conferences? Absolutely. Uh, and and not only that, antics. but he would keep the team. We were just talking about how important it is to snack, right? During the event. Yeah. And he would have Slim Jims like everywhere, right? Like it would be, oh, would be a, a never ending supply would, of Slim Jims. I thought you were going to say he would supply cocaine so that they, <laughs> nobody got an appetite. No, remember, this is this is like official match rules. So like I'm, I'm assuming right. that there would be drug testing, right? Yeah. So um, or is caffeine allowed in this hypothetical match? Yes, because we're not going to implement ridiculous match rules. Excellent. Yeah. But Macho Man, wasn't he the one who did those Slam It to a Slim Jim commercials? Do you remember those at all? Maybe. Uh, all I remember is the the cream rise rises to the top. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he would be he would be definitely like the press con- press conference winner every time. Yeah. Like he would I be mean, the, the spokesperson. Square the team off against White would be hilarious <laughs> in the press conference. <laughs> Oh, we need that press conference. We also need the Michael Scott under the giant press conference, post-game press conference. Could you imagine how, how great that would be? Yeah, I'm just trying to think what kind of persona Michael Scott would adopt. Like, would he be the the uh, the gangster Michael Scott or like, like he was when he was in prison? Would he try to do that maybe in, uh, after game two to kind of uh, toughen up his appearance lift his spirit um, yeah especially in, in light of the opposing team you know the thing is though like we kind of know because michael scott was was interviewed by the documentary crew within the office right so we kind right. of know his on-camera persona a little bit he would just be talking about how great of a boss he is or just blair in this case mm-hmm. um, but then play three kingy two in the king's <laughs> right right oh uh, okay um, all right, now we got to decide who wins. Who wins this match? Michael Scott versus Andre the Giant, 24-game chess match. Um, we know their teams. We've outlined their, their teams. We know their playing style. Um, who wins? Uh, I mean, I have to go with Andre the Giant, unfortunately. I just, I just there are too many, way too many variables uh, that with this Michael Scott team. And it also depends who shows up, you know? So barring any, like, real health problems with Andre the Giant, uh, yeah, I mean, we have to, I have to give it to him. You know, I actually agree. I think this is kind of a, a slam dunk, maybe even too lopsided, lopsided of a match. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it feels like to me. There are so many, as you pointed out, like, could Michael Scott just, like, quit after game three, you know, just, like, walk away? Um you know, I oh, just, or maybe he could do a. You know, I was thinking it could be because it's the fiftieth fiftieth anniversary of Fisher Spassky, right? So like he could do a bishop take h two style, you know, pawn grab right in game one, and then game two he just doesn't show doesn't up. Doesn't show up exactly, exactly. But then like in game three, wow, he I could totally see this. This kind of follows the narrative of 
this Scott Andre the Giant match. Because like in game three, you know, Fisher did that very eccentric knight h5, allowing the doubling of the pawns, very controversial. Yes, yes, in I the modern that. Benoni, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just drilled Boris Spassky. So, you know, I could see, wow, I never would have thought I would have linked Fisher, Bobby Fisher and Michael Scott in the same sentence. But some way, somehow, it kind of flows. All right, are, are you are you adjusting then? Are you switching over to Scott? Does he make an epic comeback? Or are we sticking with no, Andrew the Giant? No, that's probably just wishful thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's got to be a slam dunk, right? With yeah, the be slam. All right, so we are both in agreement. Last, last time we disagreed, but we are both in agreement on this one. Last time you went Shrek, I went Beth Harmon. Um, Michael Scott, uh, user submitted matchup, Michael Scott versus Andre the Giant. Um, we both come down on Andre the Giant winning this 24 game match. Yeah. And maybe Shrek, uh, versus Andre the Giant for the candidates final, but that's a different story. Yeah, that would be interesting. And so, you know what we need to, we need to sort of keep track of, of anytime we have like decisive winners like this, and then we can match them against each other. So I will start. I will start that now. So Andre the Giant, clear winner. Andre wins. Okay, um, Gopal. We have our last segment of the day, which is this month in chess. We're going to do a really quick hitter this time. We are running up against it here. So I will read the headline, and you give me your rapid reaction. We have four and a half headlines. I say four and a half because the last one is U.S. Chess one, which I will react to. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Ring the bell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. First one. Uh, Jan Nepomnishi pretty much runs away with the candidates. Uh, so are we going to have... Re- what, what do you think about this? Nepo wins the candidates. I don't know. I, as, I mean, he played He played awesome. Uh, definitely he benefiting did. from the preparation, the really good preparation that he did uh, you know, in the past couple of years. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wish I, I would have seen Dingler in win. But I mean, okay, like I, I don't really... Yeah, in the, in the same breath, I, I really, you know, I'm not too invested in, in who wins. Like, whoever plays the best should win. Yeah. Uh, I've always been a big proponent of Dingler in for, like, over 10 years now. Um, I always thought he looked like a future world champion to me. And, and he was right there, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I, I think him. from I, like a Nepo played great, but I think like from a fan perspective, you always just want to see like a different match, right? You want to see somebody new. But Nepo played yeah. great and, and absolutely deserved to win. Yeah, um, 100%. Okay, next up here, and and I'm you can see the direction I'm going in. This is directly related to what we just talked about. Fide gives Carlson a July 20th. That is two days from this recording. July 20th deadline to declare whether or not he will show up for the match against Nepo. Um, this all goes back to a, I believe it was a Norwegian podcast interview Carlson gave shortly after winning the title, where he said, you know, um, if it's Ale Reza, I'll show up. If it's anybody else, yeah, maybe not. Um, what do you think about this deadline? Uh, that's interesting. And he still hasn't said anything or alluded to anything yet. As of today, I, ha- I, I haven't caught up on my chess news today, but as of today, uh, I have not seen one way or the other, whether there has been a declaration from Carlson or his camp. I got you. Um, I, yeah, I mean, that that's interesting. Like, good for him. You know, he's, I mean, he's proved, proved himself beyond, like, any sort of doubt. So, uh, I mean, I guess it would kind of suck to see him default the title like that and then 
But then we get to see a Dingler and Nepomnishi match, which, you know, that, that yeah, you were just talking about how, how you in, interested you were in that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, then it just kind of goes to show that like, there's like, it, it's, it's all rather fickle. Like, cause for, remember for several years, uh, I think at least like three years, if not four years before mm-hmm. he became world champion, Carlson was the number one player in the world. By yes. A pretty decent margin as well. Yeah. So, by rating as well as tournament performance. Yeah. So it just kind of, you know, like it, it's kind of a format, you know, the, the title itself is kind of a formality. Like he could be, He's like in effect still the world champion. I think even if he defaults the title, I think that's a fair take. I mean, he, he well, he's in effect the the strongest player, right? Right. Um, by rating and 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 obviously, you know, we I think we discussed his quest for twenty nine hundred on the last show, but you know, he sort of also stated that twenty nine hundred was a, a barrier that he wanted to break. Right. Um, okay, moving right ahead. Uh, Carlson sticking with him. Magnus Carlsen heads to Las Vegas for the World Series of Poker. Is this a preview of his life after chess, do you think? Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, he probably is, like, extremely secure. He can get endorsements or work whenever he wants. Probably has other projects he wants to do. Like, you know, he's got to live his life. And he's still very young. So Live, laugh, love. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, we talked about psychology last month on the show. As a crossover player myself, you know, I do enjoy myself a good poker game. I think that, you know, one advantage chess players have is that psychological fortitude, you know, from playing in matches, from playing this really competitive, uh, difficult, abstract game. I think that translates. I think that translates to the poker table a lot. Yeah. And then also the discipline to, you know, wait for your chance. Right. Um. Okay. Third. Oh, we already did third. Fourth. <clears throat> Levon Aronian. So this is an American chess story because you may remember Levon Aronian has transferred federations to the United States. Levon Aronian wins the recently completed FTX Road to Miami. How do you feel about his performance there? Did you catch any um, of the games? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, like from a theoretical perspective, um, I think it is uh his uh, patronage of the queen's gambit accepted in recent times and also in this tournament uh is really interesting just it's always kind of had this reputation as a super solid opening and well respected mm-hmm. uh not that there were like many problems but there has been quite an explosion of popularity in the queen's gambit accepted uh lately so i really liked his games uh there like very yeah. pretty dynamic, pretty fresh and a lot of different new ideas. Also uh, with white in the Sicilian, like the last several months, maybe year he's been playing just very, what you would call like a, a kid's approach to the Sicilian, right? With knight F3 and Bishop C4 and just no D4. Um, yeah. Kind of playing like a reverse, like a English opening. Exactly. Yeah, but adding some new twist to it as well. I mean, not like he had an advantage in in those games early on or, you know, just kind of going for a a very playable position um, where he can, yeah, try to outclass his opponent later. But I think it's he's always coming with some very interesting, dynamic new ideas. It'd be interesting to see him in the next cycle. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm interested... 
I've gone on record before. I love tournaments like this. Um, the FTX Cup, it was all online. It was a rapid format. There was a qualifier stage. Then there was then there was a match stage culminating in a final match between Aronian and Wei Yi. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan. I hope they keep doing it. I think these are really exciting. They're great for the fans. Sam Sevian had a great event, too. I believe he he won. He had the most points in the qualifying stage. And he was ahead of yeah. Wei Yi. He was up 2-1 to one on Wei Yi in the match stage and played very aggressively. I, I don't know if you remember the game. I think he played G4 in, in, in a Sicilian, uh, if I remember correctly, or something like that. Or no, it wasn't a Sicilian. It was like a uh, Wei Yi played a very interesting opening, like G6, Bishop G7, A6 were his first three moves. And I think Oh, and um, it was Bishop E3 and, and G4, right? Yeah, I played. I, I think. I think that. I think it was e four, g six, knight c three. I think bishop g seven, a six, g four. So just like a really weird opening and, and fun game. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, great, great yeah, tournament. C3. Yeah, yeah, please keep doing it. Um, whoever is running these things, FTX sponsorship, we we love it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think, uh, yeah. Way, yeah. Way to me was was a big story of this tournament. You know, it was great to see yeah. him like in action. Um, especially like, cause he, he had a really kind of meteoric rise and then just kind of, he, he had to adjust to being in the elite. So this was nice to see also, uh, Arjun Iragaisi, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I loved, I love the way he played, you know? Yeah. People forget Wei Yi is still very young and very good, you know, very young and very good. Um, Iragaisi, obviously a rising star, you know, he, he started, um, I remember it was this year's uh, World Rapid and Blitz, right? Where he just had a stunning performance. Right. Uh, and yeah, he's... Uh, so since Kasim Zhanov is no longer working with Caruana, uh, uh, like it's, it, he's been working a lot with Irigaisi. So you see that... Um, I don't know if I see a lot of parallels uh, just yet, but you know, you know he's getting some of the best opening preparation out there. So definitely a player I've kept my eyes on because of that. And he's very like a fighting player dynamic. So like wide repertoire can play a lot of different types of positions, quiet or crazy. So yeah, nice. great player to watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Last one. This is just a half news note. Um, uh, us chess recently moved to uh, St. Louis. Uh, we have completed our move from um, Tennessee, Crossville, Tennessee to St. Louis. Our headquarters are now in St. Louis. Uh, so congratulations to us, to us chess. And it's a great for me because I'm in the Midwest. It's much closer to get to headquarters. Now we are thrilled to be there. And also welcome to Brian Yang, uh, NTD. Brian Yang is now our new FIDE events manager as well. So just a couple of quick notes on the home front. Go Paul, anything you want to add to wrap this up? Um, finish the episode. This was a fun one. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, no, I think we basically got it all. Cool. All right. We'll see you next month. Listeners, if you have any suggestions like Morpheo78 did, uh, you, you want to see two, two people, two players, fictional or otherwise, they can be real, they can be not real, go up against each other in a 24-game match analyzed by yours truly and Gopal. Um, send it our way. Send those suggestions our way. Let us know what you think. Did we pick the right winner? Andre the Giant versus Michael Scott? Um, and we'd love to hear from you. Andre the Giant has to be the clear winner there, man. Yeah. Uh, heavy favorite, no pun intended. All right, uh, we will wrap that up there. Go, Paul, thank you very much. I will catch you in August. Thanks, love you. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time 
with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Carianis.